Hello there and welcome to episode 44 of the Hawthorne's Debate Club. My name is Jamie Fay and I'm joined every week by two gentlemen to have a few conversations and discussions about West Bromwich Albion. So let me start by saying a warm hello to my good friend Alex Collins. Hello. And hello to my little brother Joe Clay. Hello. Ooh, reverby. So, can we bury this season already? Or must we watch in horror as the dead horse is flogged over and over again? Is there an off button that we can press somewhere? Or are all Albion fans actually prisoners aboard the event horizon, stuck on a starship trapped between dimensions, drifting in outer space, being punished in a sci-fi hellscape of lackluster drab football? I don't know. I'm not a scientist. But what I do know is that at the very least, we are two more games closer to it finally being over. A mundane victory against Blackpool, followed by a brutalising at the hands of Forrest, which may have included elements of bad luck, poor refereeing, free goals, but the constant amongst it all is that there is something chronically wrong at West Brom. Three games to go. Big deep breaths. We can make it through this together. So I guess the question is, how far will it spiral out of control on this hellish orbit through the solar system? But before we get to that troubling question, let me say a huge thank you for downloading and listening to the Hawthorne's Debate Club. Despite the misery that surrounds the club, we have these small pockets of joy in our week where we get to get together to discuss our beloved West Bromwich Albion and talk all kinds of wonderful things. All we ask in return for these bite-sized moments of joy is that you tell your friends and family about the podcast, that you share it on all your social media platforms, share it on other people's social media platforms if you have the capability. But all we want you to do is to try and get the podcast to as many ears, souls as humanly possible. On this week's episode, we're not going to talk in too much detail specifically about the games. We're going to try and extract some of the talking points from the games, the things that have been gnawing at our minds as a consequence of what we've witnessed, of what we've been present to. We're also going to talk about just some of the general turmoil around the club, as well as discuss all the news and the usual bits and pieces before previewing whoever it is that's playing us next. So... Since we last met, there has been two games. The first was against Blackpool at home, which finished 2-1 to the Albion, followed up by Nottingham Forest away, which was Bank Holiday Monday, which finished in a 4-0 defeat. The interesting thing about these two games is that despite the difference in results, there wasn't a great deal of contrast in the performances, both, again, just this continuation of slugging our way from Maya, unimaginative, unexciting, dreadful football, all of the same problems that we've been subjected to over the past few months were present in both games, the only difference being, I guess, the quality of the opposition and perhaps the referee in either game that made the difference in the scoreline. But overall, these games were a little bit more of a season on repeat, a bit of a broken record spinning around through the same terrible song over and over again. 
Guys, we're not going to go for a minute-by-minute analysis of these two games, but I guess there are a couple of talking points. We'll start with the Blackpool game. We're going to go all the way back in time. What is it, four days now or so ago? I don't even know. I've, I've lost count. I have no calendar in front of me. I can't work out when things happened anymore. Blackpool obviously finished in a victory, 2-1 to Albion. It was interesting on Twitter. Nigel Quasi, former player, still a fan. He said something that we've all been thinking for an awful long time, that results obviously aren't everything in football. Performances themselves sometimes need to be what draws our eye, what causes us to stand up and take attention. And the problem with Albion's wins at the moment is they come on the back of poor performances. And this very, very much felt like this in the ground. It was a real hard watch. What did you guys make of this performance despite the victory? The black ball game, yeah, we won. I think we were lucky to win, to be honest. Overall, I think I think it probably was a draw. I think Blackpool turned up. We didn't, as per usual. And that's it, really. I can't really... It's This podcast is going like this every, every week. And I know the listeners out there probably think the same. And they're probably thinking, gosh, this team, where we are at the moment, is it's kind of depressing. It's hard to talk about it. You forget what happened in the game. And it was only four days ago. It was that bad that we forgot. The lineup was a bit more, I suppose you would say, attacking. I don't know. I, I was happy that Mowat wasn't starting because I think he holds us back a little bit. And I'd like Taylor Garden Hitman there, but I think all our players are kind of average. So I don't think any different lineup's going to change the way we play at the moment. We play shocking. The confidence is low. The Quality is low. I don't know how you go from when we were with Bilic, who passed it around, and now they can't even pass it to each other. They can't even do a long ball. Yeah, I mean, I just thought Blackpool was so poor. We should have taken them to the cleaners. You know, we should have been absolutely thrashing those teams. They didn't offer anything as an opposition. No offence to Blackpool. <laughs> yeah, I just thought we won last-minute goal. I think we were very lucky to come away with three points. We were just so boring, lacklustre performance. I suppose that was the Jekyll of us at the moment. Like I say, loosely speaking, it's a Jekyll rather than a Hyde performance, but really disappointing, although we won. But it was good in a way that it put us within, gave us a bit of hope, didn't it? I mean, going into the Nottingham Forest game, if we'd have won that, we'd have been three points off playoffs with uh, three games to play. Yeah, I think that's quite interesting. You said the Jekyll analogy there, because Blackpool are very poor, but we made them look better than they are. And it's how do you make a poor team look good when you've got the calibre, which we all keep saying, we've got the calibre of players that should be in the top six at least but I don't think they are they're not as good as we all thought I think they were overachieving for a long time and now we're realising what they are I think it's interesting for me about the Blackpool game I was on a live chat on Saturday with Baggies Bulletin Tom from Baggies Bulletin and we were chatting about the Blackpool game a little bit listeners you can go and watch that with a little face-to-face chat on instagram you can go and watch that at your leisure but we were talking about this game one of the things that really stood out to me is that like you said joe there's a fair amount of household recognition for albion players i guess there's they're kind of some of the bigger names in the league they might not be worldwide renowned football players but they're certainly in terms of the championship at least big names and it was startling, really, I guess, that to watch Blackpool and there were players in their team that I've honestly never heard of. Um, and I'm not being disrespectful, like you said, Alex, to Blackpool, but the quality they possessed in terms of like midfield, particularly 
the ability to progress the ball with dribbling and incise passing, particularly dribbling players that are happy to pick up the ball and move up the pitch of it without being down the wing, but actually to drive at the heart of our defence. There was a guy, and I can't remember what his name is again, I still haven't looked it up, but he was kind of a little bit of a Jack Grealish wannabe. He had like a little headbanding and stuff like that. And whenever he got on the ball, it was like watching Jack Grealish, there was this determination to progress the ball. Now, if you contrast with that with our midfielders, who on that game were Malumbi, Livermore and Callum Robinson, I believe. Malumbi, whenever he picks up the ball, it is the quickest release of a ball I've ever seen. And it's always sideways or backwards. Very, very rarely will he attempt a forwards pass. And I think what it shows to me is that what we have, although they are relatively household names, particularly in the way we build up um, attacks in the Albion, is that we're trying to do it with players that aren't comfortable in possession of the ball. They are out of possession players. I think I made this point on last week's podcast. They are players that their main attributes are getting the ball back, what they do out of possession, defensively holding shape, bringing in tackles, pressing, harrying, determination and all of these things. And that's great. You need players like that. And this is going to speak to something that I know you're particularly concerned about, Alex, is the complete lack of balance in the side, that we've got players who are like that, defensively minded. But in terms of players that you're happy to have on the ball, there's very, very few of them in the squad. And those players that are more comfortable on the squad seem to be the players that are most subject of the fans' derision at the moment. One such of those characters came particularly under fire in the Blackpool game, Mr. Callum Robinson, who, just for clarity's sake, I totally agree that in that incident, in front of the Brummie Road and at the start of the second half, he's in one of those situations where the keeper and the defender, neither one seems to know who's going to deal with the ball. There's an opportunity for him to kind of seize the ball and have a shot go through on goal there's a potential that he might get brought down by either player and there is just an opportunity to capitalize on a bit of indecision in the defense instead he clearly bottles it is the phrase that was going around on social media he doesn't lunge at the ball he doesn't get that bravery to kind of try and win the ball back and it's so obvious that it happens and i'll be totally honest i was raging and instantly the whole crowd turned against him and they really did the whole crowd now what happened then was a pocket of fans started booing now i think everyone was angry at him but it was a pocket of fans that started booing him which i found to be totally honest outrageous booing your own player whenever he possessed the ball as frustrating as that particular incident was booing him whenever he picked up the ball from that moment was really you could see it was just damaging and the problem with booing is and again i've mentioned this before is it's really difficult to counteract booing if you don't agree with it in the ground (laughs) because the best you can offer is kind of like do you cheer do you do you clap do you try and like outmatch the booing there's not really a lot you can do without just making it sound like you're being sarcastic because if you cheer it sounds ironic and if you clap it seems sarcastic so what did you guys make of that incident and the the major kind of booing of Callum Robinson for me on the tv it didn't look like he could get there 
personally. I think he's not a fast player, but it did look like he bottled it. It looked like he pulled up and he could have given it a chance. If he just got beaten to it, it looked like he, you know, he didn't pull out. And I think he did pull out. Uh, <laughs> but I don't agree with the booing. I know you said it was a pocket of fans, but I think that is fans just being just distraught of where we are at. And I think it's got to that point. And we have got a, a few people we like to get on the back off and a few people... We don't get on the back off like Dean Garner, never showing up. I know he's not playing his best on the left, but I, I won't go into that. But yeah, I, I don't agree with the booing. And like you said, you can't counteract it. Because if you start cheering it, it looks like ironic cheers. So you just you just add into the, the pain of Robinson. But he can go out if he gets played. He can show them. Hopefully that does give him a bit of fire, but I don't think it will. I think it'll do the opposite and I think he'll probably want to leave. Again, I, I agree. Um, I think booing is not good and uh, I think negativity breeds negativity. But I do think it was the last straw on the donkey's back more so than it being consciously aimed at Robinson. I mean, imagine if we were 4-0 up and he does that. I don't think anybody would even remember what happened. But I think the fact that it, you know we were 1-1 chasing a goal I think a lot of the fans were kind of pumped up and they were looking for a, a goal looking for a saviour and then you've got somebody who's been a bit of a coward the players have put themselves in that kind of situation where little things in the grand scheme of things like that I think it's making like a storm in a teacup making mountains into molehills mole hills into mountains you know <laughs> you don't get many molehill round here so you have to make the mountain into a molehill first I just think it's just a sign of the times, really. I think the players have put themselves in a position where little things like that are aggravating the fans and, you know, causing them to, to boo, which is, you know, it's quite severe, really, isn't it? Quite a severe reaction. Yeah, like I said, I've just never seen it, really. To especially express that an individual player, I understand, booing the whole team. And it was just kind of, I guess, like a flashpoint, like you said, a tipping point for a lot of the crowd. I think a lot of anger has been directed towards Robinson this season. I cannot understand it for the life of me in terms of his contribution this season. His dwarfs virtually every single player this season, despite all of the mechanical flaws in the system that we've tried to play all year, he has contributed. And the only difference is, is that, like I said last week, he, he beams with a smile occasionally. And I guess that coupled with this particular incident is just seen as a, this guy doesn't care, this guy doesn't have pride in the shirt or the badge. And I just don't believe that at all. Callum Robinson's never struck me as a player that doesn't want to play for Albion. He's come down the leagues with us. He's scored some wonderful goals with us. He seems to have a real good relationship with Carlin Grant and various other players. I guess that's just, like you said, Alex, a bit of an indication of where we are as a club at the moment, that people are just so frustrated that it it, it keeps boiling over. And it really does just speak to the, the strength of feeling of frustration at the club. I guess what you said, Joe, at the very start there was interesting. This was a little bit more of an attacking lineup. You had Carlin Grant, Callum Robinson and Andy Carroll on the pitch from the start. Uh, Andy Carroll involved in both goals. He flicks the ball on to Adam Reach, who puts the ball in for Andy Carroll to score in the first case. Got to say, actually, a bit of a, a plus note was I did think Adam Reach outperformed Connor Townsend. I think his contribution 
going forward is so much more impactful than Connor Townsend. And defensively, I didn't think we missed anything by not having Connor Townsend in the team. And then just to come back to what I was originally saying, Andy Carroll obviously involved in the second goal as he fires the ball back across the box following a corner. And Carlin Grant with what has to be said is a quality finish and quite a brave finish actually, just chucks his leg in to kind of a crowd of legs. They're all going for the same ball and Three points are ours, which then leads us into, as Alex said, a little bit of a hope, uh, a little bit of a glimmer of hope started to sparkle on the horizon. People suddenly had their calculators out again and the fixture list and the distance between us and the playoffs, protractors and sundials and everything were out measuring how much was required to get us to the playoffs. And so I guess we were all coming towards the Nottingham Forest game, realising that they are the informed team in the league presently. And Steve Cooper is well known for playing a brand of football that is attractive, it's attacking, it's intentional, and they are rolling teams over at the moment. So there was a mixture, I guess, of the hope combined with a little bit of a realism that this isn't the team probably that are going to lie down and let us pick up some more points on our playoff quest. But I guess starting with the lineup changes, this game went about as badly as you could anticipate a game going within about 15 minutes of kickoff. What did you guys make of this one? Perhaps if we start with the lineup changes, which were a bit of a surprise. I think Steve Bruce made a massive error on this. And I think Steve Bruce went for the draw before we had even started. And I think it was the most negative set up since Valerian Ishmael. I think Steve Bruce has always tried to win the game, but this is the first time I thought that he'd just gone to get a draw because they're in form and we're away. And if we had a draw, we may still have a chance in a couple of games. Yeah, I mean, I can't really say much more. I agree with Jay. It was a very defensive lineup. I did think for the first 15 minutes of the game, we looked the better team and we looked like we were going to win it. But obviously we were hamstrung with a few bad decisions and, you know, things weren't going our way. And then before you know it, you're 2-0 down and uh, the game's over. We're down into damage limitation. One of the problems that I had with Steve Bruce's kind of approach to this game is it's so inconsistent. I mean, how often do you speak about not changing a winning side? And he literally makes six changes, I think, is to a winning side. Completely upsets the rhythm of the team, the harmony of the team. Now, that's not to say that I believe that that winning side um, against Blackpool was necessarily, should have been completely unchanged. But to make wholesale changes like that was problematic, I thought. I think as soon as I saw the team sheet, I was like, and I think a lot of fans were in this boat, were precisely what Joe said. Are we not going for this game? Is it is it play for a draw and hope we kind of sneak a point away from them? It was a game, like you said, Al, that started off really badly. And I think I just want to speak a little bit about the Darnell Furlong sending off because he come under loads of criticism on social media, people absolutely flaming him for his two yellow cards. And I feel like I want to defend him if I can take the stand to defend Darnell Furlong for a moment. He hasn't had a brilliant season, I understand that. Performances have been hot and cold, started off brilliantly, kind of really dipped in form, lost his place to Taylor Gardner-Hickman, seemed to be only utilised for long stretches in the first team as a 
kind of set piece weapon from throw-ins. But if you just take his performance in this game, albeit only 15 minutes of it, and remove the prejudice of he hasn't had a great season, the tackle he makes, he has got done by their winger, moves between two players really well with the ball. But if Darnell Furlong doesn't bring him down, he's essentially running towards the 18-yard box unchallenged and it is effectively like a goal scoring opportunity not in terms of a one-on-one -on -one with the keeper but it is a good chance being created in that incident so i don't mind him taking a yellow card there i know it's early in the game but ultimately he takes one for the team a little bit there the second one people criticizing him where his hand position and whatnot the only reason darnell furlong is in that position to handball is because he actually does a last stitch block to block the initial shot that comes in and it is the follow-up shot as he's kind of rolling over on the ground to try and get another part of his body in the way that his arm makes contact with the ball it's a stonewall penalty you can't argue with that i don't know if he should have been booked for that for me i don't think it was deliberate I don't think it shouldn't go unpunished, but I think a second yellow card, it really felt like, like what everyone says, a double punishment. And so obviously he gets sent off there, but then reading on social media, like people absolutely like ripping him to shreds, like his embarrassment, let the club down. I'm like, they are two things that I want him to kind of make those professional challenges. I want him to throw his body, any part of his body in front of the ball if he thinks it's going to stop it being a goal. He was just unlucky in this case that it, it hit his arm. And I thought the criticism was really, really unfair. One thing I would say to that, Jamie, I completely agree with you, by the way, that he, I think he was very unlucky with both bookings. But I do think you make your own look in a, in a sense that was his positioning great in both scenarios? You know, should he have been aware that his hands, where his hands were, even if he was, you know, protecting his face or using his arms to manoeuvre? In this day and age, you know that the referees pull you up on that. I'm just trying to put a counter argument in, really, play a bit of devil's advocate. I think that on your positioning one, I think he probably was making up for bad positioning from our centre-backs, mainly. And I'd raise that people saying Furlong didn't play well or he's a disgrace. What did Connor Townsend do in this game? That's what I'd raised to you. I can't remember a challenge he put in. And I'm not sticking up for Furlong. He's had a poor season. And a lot of the players have had a poor season. But at least he tried to make that block. He put his body in line. And his challenge beforehand was brilliant. A top-class challenge. And that's what your centre-back should be doing. It was unlucky. And I agree. It probably shouldn't be in a second yellow card. But then the ref, he could say it was deliberate. is one of those. I just think that, I know obviously as fans we're emotional, we think more with our hearts than our heads and I don't want to just try and turn this into some sort of like intellectual thought exercise when you talk about football because I do think the passion and the emotions are important to talk about and how raw it feels but the, the inconsistency with the criticism of certain players, like we criticise players for not caring enough or not trying enough, and then you've got an incident where a bloke throws his body in the way of two shots and one of them cannons off his arm and he's still being criticised. I'm like, let's just be a bit more consistent. Like, if we want that from our players, let's say, okay, it sucks that he got a yellow card because essentially that writes off the game at that point. But that's the kind of thing we want from our players. We're a team that we're demanding this 
hardened performance from our players. And I think Darnell Furlong epitomised that with the way through his body round. But people might not agree, but that's okay. Right, so let's move on to perhaps one of the bigger talking points from this game, the source of an abundance of controversy. And it kind of flows very, very nicely out of the Darnell Furlong conversation. Obviously, Forrester awarded the penalty, which they scored. Darnell Furlong is sent off. But then following that, obviously, their second goal also was surrounded by controversy. The ball seemingly goes out off Spence, the Nottingham Forest player, after it pinballs around on the, the wing. The linesman flags for a West Brom throw-in, and the referee seemingly either ignores the linesman, doesn't see the linesman, but he allows Forrest to take the throw-in. Connor Townsend, who is obviously incensed that he hasn't made the right decision, is drawn towards the referee and then consequently finds himself out of position. Obviously, Forrest carry on and play. They don't score from that move, but it results in a corner which they then go on to score from. And it was just something you couldn't describe as anything else other than a massive refereeing error. There wasn't any, like the furlong penalty, debate about whether it is or not. This was just a black and white, the referee got this one wrong. Now, does that mean that Albion defended the corner spectacularly? No. Is there an argument about having players on the post? Yes, you can have all of those things. But for me, it's fair to say that referee makes the correct decision or there's a conversation between him and his linesman. Do Nottingham Forest score that second goal? The way they scored it, I think the answer is a pretty resolute no. What did you guys make of that whole incident? From listening to Joe Massey from the Express and Star, he believes that the fourth official got involved. That's why the referee overruled it and the fourth official told him that it wasn't a West Brom throwing when we can see from the, the replays. And you can see, I was watching it on TV, we're in the same view as the fourth official and he's overruled it. And I just think it is a massive error and we didn't handle ourselves very well. Obviously, you mentioned the corner, but like you said, it would never have got to that if we'd had the throne. But, you know, it's just one of those things where it riled our players, but it didn't rile us in playing better football. It riled us in that we came a bit yeah, ill-disciplined and as we saw, and we may move on to it, is Taylor Gardner-Hitman probably should have been sent off for what he did on paper, but it was a really bad shot, to be honest, to hit off the crossbar of the hoardings. But yeah, he should have been sent off. So I think the referee knew he did wrong and was a bit lenient on us on those things. And I think Livermore should have got a yellow card the amount he was going at the referee. So the referee did give him a helping hand to win it, but that was it. I remember saying at the start of the season, are we going to miss VAR? I think we have. Well, I think we've been incredibly unlucky with referees this season. It was quite interesting watching Neil Warner on telly. You know, he's a bit of an arch nemesis, isn't he, for us Baggies fans? And he seemed not really angry by it. The situation really would have benefited from VAR. It was just very unlucky, as we've touched on earlier. But the way the players reacted, lost their heads, you know, lost concentration... You know, I do think with the corner, I just think it was poor marking by Moat, to be honest with you, who I didn't think had a great game. I messaged the, the WhatsApp group just to say, like him and Grant don't look like they're, they're playing for West Brom at the moment. I think what you said, Joe, it became very clear. I think this referee clearly realised he got, if not one, multiple decisions wrong in this game. And it had not just been kind of like innocuous decisions that hadn't led to anything. There was a real strong case that you could say that without the referee, 
Nottingham Forest wouldn't be 2-0 up and coasting towards victory 25 minutes into this game. And I think he knew that. You could see whenever the guide cameras went on him, he's very aware that he's on TV. He's also aware that he's probably made a mistake because of the way that Albion players reacted. Again, that criticism that they lost their heads and were kind of going at the referee, that's the kind of thing that we seem to be desperate to see from our players. Uh, and yet when they do it, it's then started to be kind of labelled ill-discipline. I didn't think, apart from the Taylor Gardner-Hickman incident, I don't really think there was much in discipline. But you kind of could tell from the referee's reaction that he perhaps realised he'd got it wrong in the sense that you said, Joe. I mean, Jake Livermore was literally screaming in his face and then gesturing him to go away to the ref. And the referee didn't even move towards producing a card. Taylor Gardner-Hickman, like you said, in any other game, I think it's a booking. But I think he was trying to almost win Albion, like to say, look, I'm levelling it up now, which is just an indication of an era even poorer refereeing performance. Can I just say with the Taylor Gardner-Hickman thing, I saw on Twitter that TGH has put out an apology uh, just to say that he was aiming for the uh, the billboards and then the ball bounced off the top into the crowd. He said he didn't mean it. And he's put an apology. And I think the referees made the right decision there because I think if he'd have sent him off, I think it would have made Taylor Gardner-Hickman public enemy number one. You know, looking at the replay, I don't think he meant it. I think he was just kicking it at the boards to waste a bit of time. I don't think he's done that with any sort of malice towards the, the Forest fans. No, I totally agree with that, but I don't think that the referee's job is to necessarily just weigh up his intention. I think sometimes you've got to weigh up what is the the end product of this? Is this an element like an outburst of frustration that has led to him potentially injuring a fan and weighing that up? I don't know if that's an automatic red card. I but... suppose it's it's the old murder and manslaughter argument, isn't it? Like yeah, a... like, but the, like you don't say, well, we'll just let you off because you didn't mean it. Ultimately, I think the only reason referee doesn't kind of go at Taylor Gardner-Hickman there is because he's trying to kind of soften the blow for Albion. So then we find ourselves down to 10 men. And this is where I guess there's some elements of the referee's performance that I do question, is this guy secretly a West Brom fan and he's just looking to create a scenario in which Steve Bruce can self-sabotage to the point where we actually have to get rid of him because this game suddenly changed narrative completely and the game script has entirely changed as it was abundantly clear that, as you've already said, Alex, this was more of a damage limitation exercise, well, at least for Steve Bruce and co. Because following going down to 10 men, he took off our leading goal scorer, Carlin Grant, and replaced him with Taylor Gardner-Hickman. And from me, from that point on, I couldn't actually tell what Albion were trying to do other than park the bus on a 2-0 defeat. It just seemed to be to me that whenever we got the ball and there was an opportunity to progress or advance or mount some form of attack or counterattack, whatever it was, the only outlet was suddenly Andy Carroll, who at the best of times is relatively static. And even in the best case scenario where he did win the flick on and it did go to an Albion player, you were 
find it falling at the feet of Adam Reach or Alex Moa, who then had no one else in front of them and so had to turn back. And by the time the long ball has gone forward, you find it's already back at the likes of Matt Clark within seconds of him playing the ball long. It was like when Darnell Furlong was sent off, Steve Bruce decided to just start waving the white flag and say, just don't spank us now. But ultimately, with only four games to go at that point, what else you got to lose? You might as well go for it. And Carlin Grant being pulled for me is an absolute madness. And I know he gets criticised for, as you've already said, Alex, for not doing much out of possession. But ultimately... He's our leading goal scorer. He assists goals as well. He has more goal contributions than everyone else on that pitch in that moment. The only other player in the whole squad is the other enemy of the fans, Callum Robinson. And he pulls him and he comes off and he's frustrated and he's swearing and people aren't sure whether he's swearing about Steve Bruce or the referee. But then people criticise him for that as well. And this is the same player that they criticise for laughing and joking after the Blues game. And it feels like he, he can't win in either direction. He comes off and he's frustrated and he gets criticised for that. He's not frustrated in another game. He's criticised for that. And ultimately, we've taken off perhaps one of our most dangerous players who's just scored a last-minute winner in the game previous to this. And Albion look hopeless for the rest <clears throat> of the time. What did you make of Steve Bruce's decision to take Carlin Grant off? I think he's ludicrous. I think at the start of the game, he set up for a draw. And when we're 2-0 down and they're sending off, he's settled for the 2-0 defeat and going for goal difference. It aggravated me, irritated me. You heard some fans, I listened to the Liquidator podcast phoning on Twitter. And uh, a lot of people were saying, oh, Taylor Gardner-Hitman needed to come on. He didn't need to come on. He needed to start. That's where he should have been. He should have started in midfield. And I don't think we would have been in that position we were if he was on. But the whole negative, he should have just gone all attack, all attack. They didn't really try and score the second half. On his post-match interview, he was saying, well, we held up our own in the second half. But they were shooting pot shots because they knew they'd won the 3-0 up. And then we had no attack, so they didn't go and attack us. If he brought Dean Garner on, maybe maybe still Taylor Gardner-Hitman left Grant on and maybe bring Callum Robinson on. For me, he's lost his passion and that showed it in that game. Anywhere else, you know, any other manager would have tried to, when we're trying to go for the playoffs, there's nothing else to lose. You put on your attacking players. Maybe at second half, try and get it out till the half time. Maybe change the formation. We had three centre backs on there anyway. One that can play right wing back, Dara O'Shea. And it's all these things. It's just his passion's gone. And I don't think he's the one for us that showed it. I disagree with you both. Uh, for me, I would have made the same decision as Bruce and I would have taken Grant off purely for his work rate. I think going down to 10 men, you need players that are going to put more of a shift in than Grant. Yeah, he scores more, sets up more goals, but I think we need to keep it at 2-0 and then perhaps towards the end of the game, you know, with 20 minutes to go, then go Kungo, take off some midfielders and put some more attacking players on. That's what I would have done personally. And then on the, the Carl and Grant shouting expletives, whether that's directed at Bruce or the referee and not kicking a water bottle, that's the extreme in the other direction. He doesn't have to do much. You know, it's not hard to not laugh at the end of a game when you've just lost. And, you know, when you've been subbed, yeah, show a bit of disappointment and wear a, a frown on your face, but start kicking bottles and swearing, you know, when there's probably kids around and, you know, it's just not a very good example and just you know it's just uh it's quite childish if you will you know it's not very professional at all bad attitude i, I just disagree entirely i think we're getting muddled up here in the sense that we're kind of mistaking 
Albion players' passion for bad attitude and, and then at other times when it's convenient, we're calling their lack of passion a bad attitude. And, and for me, it's it, I, I'm really just struggling to see that it's not anything but scapegoating an individual player because ultimately, in terms of what he's on the pitch to do, which is to provide and score goals, he has done that. Perhaps he could have done more. I don't know. In the system that we've played this season, I very much doubt it with essentially him and Callum Robinson being, for the majority of the season, the only clear attacking players on the pitch where virtually every other player is kind of, as I've already said, more defensively minded. I think Carlin Grant has upheld his part of the bargain. I think if you remove the Blues thing laughing from it, I don't think there's really much criticism you could level at him. He does be, he's fairly anonymous in some parts of the game. But I think realistically, if you want your forwards tracking back and helping out in defence when you've got five defenders back, I don't know what kind of football you'd want to watch anymore I really don't and I think the problem is is that so often is the case of Carlin Grant and Callum Robinson this season they have to drop so deep to receive the ball that ultimately ahead of them is only the other player and that they still scored or assisted nearly 30 goals or more than 30 goals between them this season so for me taking off your main goal scorer when you are chasing goals at the end of the season in a last dash hope of making the playoffs. Like I say, with the whole decision to take them off, you might say, okay, well, we need players on with better work rate. Well, it didn't work. We lost 4-0. So we didn't score and we got smashed and it could have been more. They just decided they didn't win anymore. And that for me is evidence enough that that decision, even though we knew it in the time, was wrong. If you want further insight into our conversations, we'll be happy to publish the the chat logs that were exchanged last night, some passionate debate in the Hawthorns Debate Club WhatsApp group yesterday. Not as far as went on to win, then 4-0, like we just said. There was like a fluky goal from Jack Colback that I don't care what anyone says, he never meant in a million years. I think some people were trying to say David Brutton was out of position, but I'm not sure if he was really. Truth be told, it was just a bit of a freak show goal. I didn't even see the last goal because I was listening to on the radio by then. But this seems to have been a little bit of a turning point, this game. I think a lot of people were frustrated with Steve Bruce before that, but a lot of people were also in the camp of, well, he hasn't got his own players and blah, 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 blah. Now it seems to be the vast majority of fans are determined to say Bruce out. Nobody wants to see him there next season. And there is a real strength of feeling about this again, a bit of a, a wave of momentum behind the Bruce out campaign. Where do you guys stand on Bruce now? Is this kind of the final nail in the coffin? For me, yeah. Like I mentioned before, I think his passion's not there. And I don't think these are his players. Obviously, they're not. And they haven't worked out for a couple of managers going back. But these are Valerian Ishmael's players to a point. And he's moulded them in his way. And that's not Steve Bruce's fault. But Steve Bruce has been in management for probably longer than I've been alive. (laughs) He's been in it that long. He should be able to get a tune out of these players. And he hasn't. And he's gone back to the original kind of formation and kind of team back to what we were at the start. And it's just, it doesn't make sense what he's doing. It's like he can't find his players that he wants to play. Like he plays Taylor Gardner, Hitman, he plays well, he drops him. Like he bought Carl Bartley. And I just, there's all these things will keep going around your head. And you think there must be an explanation for that. But I don't think there is. And I think, horribly enough, and I didn't like how the Newcastle fans and Villa fans treated him, but he brings it on himself to a point. Like making silly decisions, I think he should be gone, and I think I think he will walk. I do. I think he gives that message that 
he wants to rebuild, but he has to do that. They'll come to some compensation at the end of the season, and he'll take his other millions. What he got, like what he got for Newcastle. I do think with Bruce, like I was saying to Jamie earlier, that it's what we do quite often on this podcast, isn't it? We talk about previous or unrecorded conversations. <laughs> But we, we spoke about how when Bruce was first appointed, we were talking about how he puts an arm around the player, helps restore confidence in players. And to be honest with you, I don't think he's delivered that. And if he, he's not delivering that, I don't know what else he offers as a manager. He's a really nice football icon, if you will. You know, he's an excellent player. He seems like a really nice bloke and his art's in the right place and everything. But I just think he's, he's not the, the manager for me to take us forward. I mean, what do you two think about the Sean Dyke situation? Would you have him? In terms of Steve Bruce, isn't it? It's, I had low expectations of Steve Bruce coming into the job. I feel like I knew what I was getting when Steve Bruce was appointed. I didn't think we were getting much more than bland, vanilla mediocrity. I didn't think we were getting some sort of tactical genius. At the very best scenario, I thought we were getting what you've described, Alex, as a man who's going to come alongside players and help motivate them. I didn't think we were necessarily going to get someone who was going to organise the team any better. I just thought it couldn't get any worse than Valerian Ishmael. Points per game speaking, it actually has got worse than Valerian Ishmael, which is absolutely remarkable. Stylistically and performance-wise, it's equitable, I guess, to what Valerian Ishmael was producing, particularly at the beginning. Before I come on to the Sean Dyche thing, I just think that with Steve Bruce, there was an interesting few games there a couple of weeks ago where we seemed to once again stumble across a little bit of a tactical solution to our midfield problem. And that seems to be what Steve Bruce does. It takes him four or five games and then he accidentally makes a decision that kind of complements what we have. And that was the overlapping centre-backs when Matt Clark and Semi Ajayi would pop up on the wing. It would give us an extra body in midfield and build up and it would allow more creative opportunities but we just seem to have stopped doing that again and then all of a sudden semi joy is dropped again and there doesn't seem to be much rhythm or plan to anything that he's trying to achieve and i think that's one of the things that i think again you and me alex are talking about what is steve bruce's philosophy what is his style it's there's nothing there's nothing to pick it's just he is and we are in terms of Sean Dyche, I was shocked. I can't believe Burnley sacked him, to be honest. Like, for what he's achieved there in, like, nine years, I think it was, and the budget he had, he's done a remarkable job. But, again, with Sean Dyche, you know what you're getting. You are getting rugged meat and potatoes football. He's enjoyed a fair amount of success with it, I guess. But I'm just not interested in watching that type of football anymore. I don't care if it gets us promoted even i want to watch better football i'm sick to death of watching brutalistic boring long ball merchant football year after year after year we captured a brief couple of seasons there with slaven village where we got the ball down and even then there was long periods in that that we were a bit rubbish particularly after lockdown but I just want to go back to playing football. So if the option was Sean Dice for Albion, I, I'm not I'm not interested personally. And I know, again, a lot of people are desperate saying we should move heaven and hell to get him. But I just don't think I'm interested in watching his style of football at the Albion. Yeah, my opinion on Sean Dice is how long was he at Burnley? Was he eight years? Eight eight, seasons? Nine years, I think, yeah. Yeah, he's got anyway, a he's, named after him. Yeah, he was there. He was part of Burnley. Is he going to be the same manager if he goes to, let's say, he went to us? He isn't. 
he was part of the furniture there. And I don't think it's like David Moyes and Everton. It takes him a while to come back around to find his mojo again. Like at West Ham, he's become the manager he was at Everton. He went to, I know Man United is a different breed of football team and they expect, but we will expect. He still has expectation on him if he comes to the Albion. We're not going to give him, if he doesn't get us up into the playoffs in the first season, it's the same effect as David Moyes had. I just think, yeah, it's not for me. I'm, yeah, I'm fed up of it. I was always one of those people who was like, it's best to be in the Premier League, best to be in the Premier League. Obviously, we want to be in the Premier League, but I'd rather see better football now. I've, I've, I've had enough of it. I've had enough of this long ball. I've had enough of this Albion being known as bringing that ancient type of football manager in. We've had them all. We've had Pardew, Pulis, Big Sam. Hodgson is classing that because he's an older one, but he's a great manager. We nearly went Chris Wilder, and Chris Wilder's kind of been mentioned that he might change into that manager that British manager that goes around the teams and tries to change them and now we've got Steve Bruce it's like we just need Mark Hughes and Sean Dyche and we have the ultimate collection we are like the ultimate collector of like benign mediocre British managers on that roundabout Um, and horribly enough we should be aspiring to be like Wolves and go for those they bought in what was his name the last manager Nuno Nuno, they brought him in when they were in, was it League One or Championship? I don't know. It was quite low down, and they brought in a manager. Yeah, they brought in a manager who played attacking football. Not unknown as such, but you know, he was an unknown entity in the English game. That's what we should be going for. I don't care. Like, if we make any, another season and we make a mistake, at least we see a bit of football. Yeah, I mentioned this on the Baggies Bulletin. I don't think the methodology for the way we went about recruiting Valerian Ishmael was wrong at all. We went for a young, exciting manager with an identity that was associated with attacking football. There was a philosophy. Now, it went wrong. I'm the first person to hold it up. But does that mean you should throw out the baby with the bathwater? Absolutely not. And I think this kind of pendulum swing now towards meat and veg football managers is just wrong. I think the biggest kind of exclamation mark you can point on that is Fulham have just been promoted tonight and they've gone up playing wonderful football. Bournemouth are second in the league. They play really well. All of the teams up there, there is no one in the league trying to play the way we play. All of them are trying to play better football than us and they're advancing beyond us. And for me, that's the biggest advert for attacking on the ball football. Yeah, can I just say with Sean Dyke, I was quite surprised when you two were talking about the style of football that he manages or that he gets his teams to play. Oh, I questioned whether it is that route one. And there was a good stat, wasn't there, that you gave me, Jamie, that there's more long balls than Tony Pulis in his teams or something like that, which that surprised me. I don't know what to think. I think he's a good manager at building clubs. But I do totally agree with you both in that his style of play might not be easy on the eye. And it might be that he's just another one of these managers that that will come in and not really do anything and just put another dent into our team, you know, reduce the the calibre of our club. It's interesting because I think what you said there, Joe, about this association now with Albion and ugly football For years and years and years, we were playing beautiful football. Whenever Sky would have us on, they'd talk about us in glowing terms with the exciting, expansive football we wanted to play. And talking about those Tony Mowbray teams and all of the other ones that are collected in there. But then over the last half a dozen years since Tony Pulis, 
we're now lumped in with your Stokes and your Burnleys as this kind of rugged brand of football team where it's all lump ball, do whatever you can to get a result. And it's just ugly. And I'm sick to death with the association. I just don't want it anymore. I want to be known as a team that gets the ball down and plays. And now, well, does, does that automatically guarantee promotion? No, it doesn't. It definitively doesn't. But does Sean Dyche coming in and playing absolute punt ball guarantee promotion either? No, it doesn't. I just want to go to the Albion game and not be pulling my hair out of watching drab football anymore and seeing Blackpool and teams like that come and stoke, who both below us, mediocre, middle of the table teams, pass the ball around us for fun i'm just i can't i don't want to watch it anymore i think i shared the tweet on our whatsapp about that Sheffield united fan who put out all the teams in the championship and one player he'd like to purchase from each team and he went through every team and we we're at the bottom and it was no one <laughs> and that really highlights it to people and they're not even taking the mick because there is no one you'd buy from our team i think if Daryl DK was didn't get injured, maybe he might be that one. But it's got to that point where we're just we need someone, we need a technical director, like we had Dan Ashworth, and that's where it's all fallen down. When we had Dan Ashworth, he brought in players where he found them to suit the football because he was there with Tony Mowbray, Di Matteo, all those, and it was just players that complemented. Even though it wasn't it always ticky tacky, it was just that middle, you know, where you had that kind of football, and it's just. That's gone. It's totally gone, isn't it? Well, in the next couple of weeks, we were going to do it tonight, but I think the podcast is already kind of running on a little bit. We were going to do a troubleshooting guide to our season to kind of try and identify what the problem is with West Brom this year. What is the underlying cause? And one of the things that me and Alex were talking about a little bit was exactly what you've mentioned, Joe, this lack of a technical director, a sporting director at the club. And I think the reason they are so important is they become consistent. I think of all the members of staff at a football club, the one with the kind of shortest expiration date period is the manager, isn't it? It's the, He's the guy who's going to lose his job before anyone else. They've got a very, very short shelf life, whereas a technical director will usually get to oversee three or four managers. And if they're responsible for building a recruitment, a culture, a scouting network, all of these different things, you can ensure that there's a DNA or a philosophy that's attached to the club that goes beyond the individual pendulum swings of whichever manager you've got at the moment. Because all that's happening at the moment is we get one manager in, he needs his players, so he gets his players the next manager comes in, he doesn't like those players, so he needs his players, and you get another lot in. And so consequently, what you get is this fragmented jigsaw piece butchery of a team where you've cannibalized different parts from different managers, and you're trying to force it all together and get it to work, when the reality of it is it's never going to work because you've got different players in the squad that are the product and selection of various different managers over the last three or four years and I think a technical director to kind of provide some sort of continuity between managers is so desperately lacking at the club it's frightening and if I was Ron Gawley I wouldn't be interested in keeping Steve Bruce and then recruiting a technical director afterwards it seems kind of the wrong way around to me I think you get a technical director in and you make him a part of the conversation about what manager we want next yeah couldn't agree more jamie we just need to sort out an ethos you know this is albion this is how we play 
a culture and you don't we're not saying that you need to get the same manager in every time you bring a new manager in or it doesn't work just somebody who's remotely similar you know somebody who can use the players that we've already got you know go from a Bilic to a Sam Allardyce you know it's Bilic European possession football passing it around a lot Sam Allardyce traditional English manager you know meat and potato as Jamie would say and then you've got after him you've got Ishmael who's bringing in like a Gagan press kind of modern European style and then after that you've got Steve Bruce who's again like an arm round you but no real I'm not really sure what his tactical or what his philosophy is he seems like a manager who likes his rotation a bit more we just need somebody to to set a direction you know we need a director so yeah I think we were going to troubleshoot this week but I think that's a little tease of our troubleshooting quandary and solutions the technical support department of the Hawthorns debate club will be in full function perhaps next week boys is that better yeah yeah, yeah, I think that's a good idea. It's going to take a good six hours to try and get our head around this mess. <laughs> Defrag this mess and whatnot. Before this podcast aired, I said Albion are very similar to Man United. And guess what Man United are doing at the moment? Losing 4-0. And we're exactly the same demise as them. Yeah, I've got a conspiracy. Go on, very quickly, mate. Are Man United the West Brom players in disguise? Never see them both at the same place at the same time. Without fire. Like Batman and Bruce Wayne. Mm. So I think we can pretty much unanimously say that on this podcast we are now an official Bruce Out podcast. Yep. Yep. Cooley. Oh. And a quick question for both you guys that came up again from social media. Is watching the Albion more or less interesting than reading the back of a packet of crisps? Oh, I don't know. What type of crisps? Oh, good question. Monster munch? Probably. I'm going to go with probably. We ask the hard-hitting, difficult questions here. Al? I think I would rather read a packet of crisps at the moment, I've got to admit. I was thinking of putting my uh, flag in the ground and saying I'm not going to watch any more Albion games until the new season now. But I'll still watch them. I can't help myself. You're doing a podcast about the album, so you best watch it. Exactly. I but, thought I thought I would go off piste and say I'm going to be a podcaster about the Albion, but not watch the Albion. I was just going to wait until they come good again, like a glory hunter. Like a glory hunter, indeed. But, ne- but next week we're starting a podcast about ingredients on uh, crisps. <laughs> so. Starting with ready salted and working our way through Walker's back catalogue. We'll be giving you the lowdown week by week on what our favourite flavour profiles are for potato salted snacks. All right, let's quickly do the news. Can I just say, if people haven't heard Jamie on the Baggies Bulletin, it was a really, I really enjoyed it. It was really good. A shout out to the chap on Baggies Bulletin. But I just want to say that Jamie made a promise. <laughs> And, and Baggy's bulletin, they're going to get a tattoo of Dean Garner if he scores a hat trick. They didn't actually specify whether it would be the end of the season or. So I'm going to get him on a get him on the small print. A technicality, um, yeah. The Baggy's bulletin was great fun actually. Like I've already mentioned that I was on it on Saturday. It might be a little bit dated now, but if you fancy going back and watching that, we really had a good chat. Um, lovely guy, lovely conversation. Big Albion fan, and he's really encouraged about our podcast. So we encourage about the fine work he does over there as well. Maybe one day he can jump on here with us on the podcast and 
we can have a conversation with him in return. But yeah, apparently we might be getting the tattoo if Grady Dean Garner scores a hat-trick. And I'm going to add some fine print now between now and the end of the season for West Brom. I mean, I'd be pretty confident, to be honest, saying that full stop. But um, just don't want to tempt fate too much. I think it's actually his birthday today, so I don't want to kind of dunk on the guy tonight. Quickly going to round up the news. Albion's Premier League 2 side lost 3-2. We won't go into too much detail about them. Uh, Seda Barahino, I know a lot of people keep tabs on him. He's won League One Player of the Month, I believe. And also Joe referenced a conversation that was taking place between Albion fans and Liquidator Podcast via the Twitter phone-in. And we all learned that Oxford are the best team and are massive. Correct? Huge. Juggernauts. Astronomical. Let's move on to the Coventry game at home. Obviously, Coventry, high-flying Coventry. Well, meant to be a tricky fixture when we played them at their ground, and we turned out one of the probably the more convincing away performances this season. We're not going to overanalyze this game. I think they, on paper, probably won't be favourites for this game, but I don't understand why. It is at the Albion in front of an ever-growing disgruntled fan base. I think this might be the first week we start hearing Bruce out chance. I really do. But what do you guys make of Albion's chances going into this game if we can have a, a score prediction as well? I think it's going to be two teams uh, that aren't really caring anymore. I know Coventry are uh, 11th and we're 12th and they have two points ahead of us. So they still have a slim open chance but I think it probably has died a little bit and they're not in the best of forms at the moment so I think this is going to be a a bit of a drab one and maybe either team may win 1-0 I think it's going to be one of those ones and if we do win I think it's going to be Callum Robinson off the bench Super Callum Alex I have to admit I feel quite guilty Jamie We've, we've promised the listeners that we're going to talk about troubleshooting. I feel like we're keeping these to ourselves where they should be released so that they can improve the performance against Coventry. But I do think that we're going to win 3-0 with a, a graded Dean Garner hat-trick. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really looking forward to this episode where we talk about the troubleshooting. Again, talking about balance and the directors and things like that. Really looking forward to that episode. So I look well, forward to that. Alex... To do some industry parlance, some jargon, if you will, this is what is known as a tease, a bit of a cliffhanger to bring people back next week. You draw them in with the promises of unbelievable content, and and that's what's going to be kind of the bait that's going to hook them for next week's episode. So make sure you come back next week to hear our troubleshooting on West Brom, providing that nothing dramatic happens in the next week and we end up talking about that instead. But yeah. That I, I'm looking forward to it as well, Alex. I think we will, you know, there's part of me that feels like I, I almost want us to take a few Mullerins now between now and the end of the season just to guarantee that Bruce goes. I think if we like turn up and have a decent performance against Coventry and say beat them 3-0, there's every likelihood he'll stay. But if they turn up and beat us 3-0, then there's a good chance he'll he'll be given his marching orders. I don't know what to predict that makes that cosmologically more likely. Albion... I mean, to be honest with you, uh, we're currently six points off the playoffs with nine <laughs> points to play for. So although it's like very, very out there, if we did get promoted, I wouldn't say it's all over for Bruce just yet. I mean, we are 
what, six games away from the Premiership if we win the next three in a row. So effectively, we have to win six matches in a row if we want to get to the Premiership. And that's not something we've done all season. So I think even though mathematically we're not written off yet, I think it's written in the stars that we're destined for another year in the Championship. And I believe Albion will beat Coventry City 7-0. Come at me, football guards, punish me. I think that was some fun that just wiped out Jamie. You'll have to finish the podcast now. Okay. Well then, I think that's it for this week, lads. <laughs> Jamie, I can't do it like you can do it. I'm the, I'm gonna resurrect you. <laughs> Jesus is back. Amen. And with that Easter kind of motif to this week's podcast. Let me say a huge thank you to you, Alex Collins. Cheers, Eric. Jamie, Eric, Clay. Huge thank you to you, Joe. Cheers. And Zeus, apparently. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hawthorns Debate Club, and we'll see you next week. Sweet.